This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Is the decline of Western civilization due to all these forces that the enemies of both within and out claim? Or is it down to the fact that we, because of modern medicine, because we live longer than we've ever lived before by by orders of magnitude, and because we remain in positions of critical decision-making much longer, is the decline in Western civilization actually a resultant effect of our declined ability, cognitive ability, to make refined decisions moment to moment. This week on the Warrior U podcast, I talk to M. Burlingame. M. is a fascinating guy. He's trained as a Zen Buddhist, he's an electrical engineer, has a degree in strategic studies, and is currently completing a PhD in computational science and engineering. And after 9-11, he rejoined the US military at 42 years old and did all the courses to qualify as a US SF Green Beret at 42. He's now the founder and the CEO of Biocorp, which is a traumatic brain care whole of health initiative. And he was a co-founder previously of a startup called Sanopic, which we'll talk about a little later. This is primarily a warrior philosopher conversation. We discuss international relations, the possibility that we're in World War III. We talk about the Greek thinkers too, and Clausewitz. Some of the main topics are that the human condition and war are intrinsically linked. Political correctness leading to war as a hard reset back to civility. Brain injuries and how that affects strategic decision making. PTSD and the difference between that and natural combat wear and tear. Estrogen versus testosterone, or is that in fact really alpha versus beta? Anyway, I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I enjoyed recording it. Before we go headlong into it, a few housekeeping items. Just a reminder that the Warrior You podcast is being held in Sydney Friday the 6th of December in the CBD with tickets available at $65. The show will be around two hours long. The guests include Paul Cale, who is arguably one of the most qualified martial artists in Australia or anywhere for that matter. We also have Reese Dewar, OAM, ex-commando captain, and you may know him better as the other host of the podcast, the patron saint of common sense. We also have Andy Taylor, the CEO and founder of Aussie Strength, who has some amazing stories about optimization and entrepreneurialism, if that's a word, it is now, and another couple of people also attending as guests who will be helping me discuss leadership, resilience, and human optimization. And if you're part of the audience, you will have the opportunity to have your voice heard on the podcast if you so seek to. Um, because you can ask us questions too. There will be some interesting door prizes. Uh, I just heard from Aussie Strength today. Andy Taylor said that that they have an amazing door prize that they're going to put up, so watch this space. Tickets available at www.events.warrioru.com.au. 
A massive shout out to the main podcast sponsor this week, Ironside Coffee, who do much more than just coffee. Check out their website for some amazing products. They are based in Canberra, but have a global reach. This week, I know for a fact that they sent a coffee order to Venice, LA. Use the discount code WARRIORU, that's WARRIOR with a U, and this will give you 10% off your first transaction on any items in the Ironside Coffee online store. As always, thanks to Aussie Strength. Aussie Strength turns your dreams into a gym. Hell, that should actually be their catchphrase. Let's face it, an awesome home gym is to 2019 what the lower back tattoo was to the late 1990s. Everyone wants one. Or maybe that's having your own podcast. Anyway, Aussie Strength have helped so many people start their own gym businesses and also have stocked more gyms across Australia than I have time to go through on this podcast. Come join their team and help them build a fitter and stronger Australia. That's their mission. You're Eric Michael Burlingham. People would know you as M, right? E-M, M. Yeah, E-M Burlingham, yeah. The the uh, Americanization of Burlingham is uh, Burlingham, so. All right, Burlingham. Yeah. Wouldn't have picked that up. Yeah, because it is a British name, isn't it? Burlingham. Yeah, Burlingham. actually, in Northern England, in York, yeah. Mm. Yeah. I would I would class myself as a as a Renaissance man, I guess. Um, people are probably laughing at yeah. that. People are laughing at that. Um, <laughs> my my interests are wide and varied, and they don't go very deep into any one area. Whereas you know, I look at yourself more of a, a almost a philosopher, modern philosopher, modern thinker of, of the type um, from back in the day. You're an electrical engineer. You have a degree in strategic studies. You're currently completing a PhD in computational science and engineering. And and oh, by the way, you are a USSF Green Beret. Of all of those things, of all of those things, the one that I guess that I know the most about is the Green Berets, having worked with a lot of them and having a lot of close friends that are officers in, in you know, that were officers in the Green Beret. One of them was a guest on this podcast, actually, Casey Finnegan. Not sure what it is about all your green berets and needing to have your first your first name become your initials, but anyway, M K C. <laughs> so I had a lot of Vietnamese friends when I was younger. They thought the C at the end of my name was too harsh for Vietnamese, which is sing songy language. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, I was six foot tall at fourteen, so M in Vietnamese means little brother or sister, and it was kind of a joke and a affectionate term at the same time, and it stuck. So yeah, it it yeah, I can see how that would work. <laughs> um, before we get on to oh, you're also the the CEO and co-founder of um, Sanopic, which which we'll discuss yes. in detail in in a bit. But um, let's have a quick chat about your military service because um, you know the, my podcast is about uh, leadership and resilience and and human optimization and. Certainly, you straddle all three of those modal thought planes, for use of a better term. But let's talk about let's talk about your um, military service. Yeah, so I I first went in the army in uh, 1986. Listened to a uh, dishonest recruiter, uh, so to speak. Uh, seems to be a common theme. Uh, but I served in 80, uh, from 86 through. 92 uh, with the active uh, U.S. Army uh, in two different stints. Uh, the last part of that, I was a tomb guard at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldiers in Washington, D.C. 
Uh, and then when I was doing a green to gold scholarship to become an officer, uh, I was uh, with the engineers. So I did four years with combat engineers. Uh, I wound up getting very sick. The army decided that it wasn't culpable or liable for the expense. Uh, I wound up having about $600,000 in debt, medical debt when I was 24. Uh, and so I told the military what it could do with itself. Uh, that took me down a very different path. Uh, took me about seven years to recover from that, but it got me back out here to Silicon Valley and tech and, and the kind of things I've been a nerdy kid with anyways. Uh, in 2001, when 9-11 happened, I felt bad that I wasn't, you know, still in uniform and doing my part. Uh, but I had come to an understanding that the real fight is not in uniform, it's with economics and economic opportunity. Uh, primarily, their children don't have the same economic futures that our children have. So I spent the next seven years trying to figure out how to bring economic development to these communities. Uh, and I kind of figured that out. I worked in China and other places, but late 2008, I realized that um, the only people that were really in these communities around the world and had the ground truth, truth were special operations uh, and in particular, the Green Berets, uh, just because of the nature of their, their unique mission uh, outside the DA uh, only mission. So in late 2008, I went back in the army at the age of 42 uh, and went through the process of becoming a Green Beret. That's amazing. That's brilliant. I love it. <laughs> well, it, uh, it certainly cost me physically, <laughs> Yeah, but uh, I, I don't regret any bit of it. Hard work. Yeah, right. So yeah, I mean that's a, I mean that yeah. that in itself is an incredible story just for 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 people who are listening as well the special forces direct recruiting scheme in Australia the age cutoff is 54 and I'm 46 this year and I still feel like if with the right training the right nutrition and the right sleep that I'd be able to I would I wouldn't be able to easily do it but I would be able to give it a crack but it's not passing is it that's the problem it's a young man's game once you're there it's a different Yes. Yeah. yeah. Passing yeah. it. Passing it is you're all you're all wrecked. You're all tired. You're all hungry. But once you yeah. once you're there, the pace of operations is not conducive to that of a you know of probably where I'm at in my life now as a family man. You know, raising boys and all that sort of stuff. I might also say I, I agree with that fully. I, I might also say that because we've been at general war you know, with a lot of unconventional and irregular warfare around the world. But because we've been at general war for 17 years, it very much is a young man's game. It is less of a strategic game anymore. It's more of a kinetic game. Uh, and that has changed things quite a bit. Would you say one of the things that I noticed from my time in special operations, especially as a uh, platoon commander in Afghanistan 2010, and having a hand in where we were going um, strategically, it seemed to me that our campaign plans were the same bloody campaign plan year in, year out, you know, from the time I was first there all the way to the last time I was there. It seemed like our campaign plans were just a yearly campaign plan rather than a 10-year roadmap for success or anything further, which is really difficult to implement when you're fighting a generational war where the people that we were we were fighting in Afghanistan, especially the the, the the sort of head of the Taliban, so to speak, 
you know, sometimes our interactions were two generations below them. Yeah, so I I look at this uh, quite a lot in my life, actually, even before 9-11 happened. We are still fighting industrial revolution-based wars where there are set roles and responsibilities and bullet, you know, bullet point tasks that have to be accomplished. And for those who are going to ride that for the next five years or so to, to move up the ranks in their careers and ensure their careers, there's no need or interest to win. And that's not just military, that's, you know, governments, um, you know, people like to say the industrial, uh, industrial, military industrial complex, but actually that's terribly small compared to the bigger economy these days. Uh, and it's really not at force. What the force is today, and I'll give you an example of the U.S., right, as one of the 5 I partners. Um, when we started uh, in, two, in uh, 2001, 9-11, we had nine general officer ranks in SOCOM. There are now 86. No. No way. 86 general officers in SOCOM. So this has been a huge boon for, you know, high rank or those seeking high levels of non-commissioned and uh, commissioned officer ranks. Well, that shows the last, straight and they away. Don't, and they're not responsible for any more than six months at a go. That shows straight away the economics of warfare, doesn't it? Because each one of those generals is assigned to a certain degree of economic um, viability inside the command. So that shows the expansion of SOCOMAD. Well, so I don't disagree with that at all. You know, SOCOM went from 30,000 plus, roughly 30,000 plus members in 2001. It's only right around, hovering around 90,000 today. And that's just in the U.S. Wow. Uh, We have Australia, New Zealand, Britain, you know, the United Kingdom and Canada. And all told, we've all increased by about that much. I would say, however, that that's a little kind of a misleading thing. And it's because the way that we keep from having political blowback about wars is special operations fights uh, more and more and more. We take up more just the, the conflict. So I'm not necessarily saying that you know, it was a bunch of officers who nefariously said, let's, you know, uh, flood our ranks and make sure that I make four star over the next 12 years. Uh, Although some of that happens just by nature. Mm. I think it's really the fact that in our modern society, we've forgotten what war really is. And war isn't nation building and state building uh, war is destroy your enemies, the message that your enemy has so utterly that it has no chance of survival. And we don't do that. No, and we didn't, we, and we didn't do that. We, we went with white space leading, leading the charge. And, yes, and we're, we're, feeling, yes. we're feeling the second order effects of that now in Australia. I won't go That's into right. too many details. Yeah. But, but, yeah, we yeah. – um, and I, I honestly – it's an interesting point that you make because it's hard to fight an enemy who's not constrained by the same, well, perceived Western values as our own. When so we uh, we we fight with one glove behind your back, sort of so to speak, and one glove in front of your face. You can't take and you can't take either of those gloves off. And I would never have done that as a platoon commander either. Um, although although I did do things inside the the scope of special operations style missions, which means deceiving your enemy, you know, showing them one thing, doing another. 
um, things that could be could be construed as you know not gentlemanly in some ways, but certainly not what's being purported in the media at the moment. But um, but then you're dealing with an enemy who has none of those laws of um, you know the, the United Nations type laws or any of the laws of armed you know rules of armed conflict. Um, certainly yeah. in in that way. Um, so it's an interesting. It's it's almost interesting to watch, and um, obviously they think they're the good guy too, right? That's the other thing. That's the other elephant course, in the room that we absolutely. don't. Absolutely, that we no one no yeah. no yeah no one ever brings that up. They actually yeah. think they're the good guy too, and, yeah. and and from you know you and I can talk about that because special forces we study that we go okay they they think they're right. How can we leverage that? Um, but it's interesting that you say that the general population doesn't understand that we were we were and are at war. In fact, my theory is that. This is not an extension of the Second World War, but it was nine um, eleven was the start of the Third World War, and and the Cold War precipitated itself into into the conditions to set the conditions for the Third World War. The Third World War will become economic, which as we're seeing at the moment, because people realise that you, you you're not going to win it um, unless they go n- nuclear across different you know nation states so what we're seeing is a is is a new type of war that will be hundreds of years i think so i think this is a return to what warfare has always been and that is perpetual right i I think it was clausewitz that said that uh peace is only a break in the hostilities right it's not there's no such thing as peace it's just a pause right a tactical pause to rebuild so is a human condition uh, think, is a human condition then set that it will always it'll it'll always have war as an extension of of not being able to win its argument um whether you know i mean a military is a is an extension of a political will but i just wonder then if humans are incapable of of having anything other than war there was an interesting thing i read um about a year ago and forgive me i can't quote the author um but it was a it was a a greek philosopher long ago thousands of years ago Mm. they stated that war is is the inevitable result of civility that when civility becomes the mandatory or the common standard that ugliness and conflict between individuals has no outlet because you must be polite. You must be politically correct in our modern world. And that war has always been that hard reset to return true civility and not the artificial civility that leads to atrocity. Yeah. Right. Think about the Nazis in world war two. Most every the reason they were able to do what they did was they maintained a level of civility, you know, or, or the face of civility, right? It was yeah. all couched and presented in the terms of you know what was socially acceptable and polite and correct. But the truth is, what is socially correct and polite and acceptable is usually determined by those that are weak. Yeah, right. And it's a means by which to prevent their getting punched in the face for being a dick. Yeah, <laughs> I want to say right. it was. I want to say it was Socrates. It sounds like a Socrates type quote. Um, Perhaps I don't think it was though. It was. Um, 
it wasn't Hippocrates. It was it was one of those folks though back earlier actually than uh, Socrates. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I love yeah. I love myself a bit of Greek um, <laughs> philosophy. Yeah, um, because it, you know I go back and I, I think about modern problems and I go, I wonder how the uh, you know how the enlightened people would have you know or the, the philosophers they're not enlightened how the how the philosophers would have dealt with that and I go back and, and research it and then you come up with something that's like Jesus that would work why didn't they implement that? <laughs> yeah. Personally, I think we would sort all of the world's problems if we just reinstituted the duel. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I'd win a lot of them. I mean, there's going to be guys. Right. Well, I, don't, I might even lose them. I don't know. But, but just the threat of a duel, right, uh, forces people to be more honest. Yes. Mind you, I've seen right. some of these. I've seen some of these civilians in America at the um, at the pistol range doing the combat shooting. I'm like, Jesus! I was on yeah. I was on the national counterterrorism team, and I'm not pulling. I'm not pack drilling as fast as that. They, there are some, <laughs> some good. Have buddies. you watched Keanu Reeves do his yeah. John Wick stuff? He's yeah. brilliant. Yeah, he's right? good. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It, int- and that is an interesting thing in itself, which I know we'll get to when we start talking about um, optimization and brain and, and technology and science, yeah, no. but. There's a reason he's as good as that, and and the muscle memory and, and all that sort of stuff. I wonder if there's um you know nootropics involved as well, and I wonder if there's a certain degree of brain um you know elasticity like Halo and things like that that he's using. But yeah, he's he's obviously goes down there and puts a lot of time and effort into being you know and you know to that weapon being an extension of him um, because it is impressive. There's no doubt about it. And I mean, we're not talking about we're not talking about big groups either. So. Synopic itself, I could give you an intro on it, but it would be, I think it would be better for you just to, to explain. Well, first of all, over 85% of Western citizens living with a brain injury, and that could be, that could be toxic or traumatic, you know, that, if that's accurate, that's astonishing. It really does go to make us question, right, or, or drives one to question is the decline of Western civilization due to all these, you know, forces that um, the enemies of both within and out claim, or is it down to the fact that we, because of modern medicine, because we live longer than we've ever lived before by dramatic, by orders of magnitude, not percentage increases, oh, right? Yeah. But orders of magnitude. And because we remain in positions of dis- critical decision-making much longer, is the decline in Western civilization actually a resultant uh, effect of our declined ability, cognitive ability to make refined decisions moment to moment? Jesus. Of course, there's always malevolence, mm. right? Always, you know, as, as Jung and Freud and, and, and now Jordan Peterson and others talking about, you know, malevolence is a good you know, depending on the population, 70 to 14% of, you know, the people around you are just malevolent. But we've always had ability, you know, those folks have been with us from the very beginning of time, um, long before we were humans. You can see them in chimp troops and you can see them in bonobos and gorillas, etc., and other um, uh, mammals. But we've always had the ability to, as a group, as a social group, deal with that malevolence. Now, here and there, it broke out and it, you know, it, it got the upper hand, but we don't seem to have that capacity today to deal with it. We recognize it, but we don't seem to have the ability to deal with it. And I cannot find any other reason that, but that this 
widespread cognitive decline. And it's not, you know, um, dramatic cognitive decline, but it doesn't take but a minor bit of cognitive decline over time to equal up to some very serious problems. Yeah. Um, so I'll give you an example of where yeah. those numbers come from. Yeah. In the United States, uh, this is CDC's, you know, Center for Disease Control numbers. Uh, there is just uh, roughly 3 million new head injury cases per year. But we have to put that in context. That's 3 million, peop- or 3 million people to go to the emergency room. We know also from very well-documented numbers that 85% of people that recur, uh, incur a head injury never go to the doctor at all. Mm. So if we're having 3 million new head injuries, and some of those are folks that have had head injuries previous, et cetera, of course, right? Um, but if we're getting 3 million head in- new head injuries or substantive head injuries per year, and 85% of people don't uh, report or go seek medical care, this means that we've got a massive massive head injury problem in in western society here in the united states in particular given our sports and our lifestyles etc when you compound that with toxic brain injury which causes the same structural damages and toxic brain injury could be drug abuse it could be nutrition deficits right Mm. uh you can eat a whole lot of food that doesn't have good nutritional value here in the united states anymore in fact we call our grocery stores food or nutrition deserts right yeah rich with food poor nutrition. Um, uh, it can also, however, be prolonged stress. So think about inner cities, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, let's take Chicago, which has very poor nutrition. Um, everybody's pouring tons of money and effort and time in there to try and fix the problem. But what if the pro- underlying problem is massive head injuries? Mm-hmm. And I, I think they just had 56 shootings this last week alone, mm-hmm. right? And our inability, you know, we've built these incredible systems in Western civilization. We really have. We've built incredibly inclusive and incredibly supportive, um, empowering platforms and systems in Western civilization. But we can't seem to benefit from them. We can't seem to um, execute them. And, th- and this gets back to the, uh, you know, warfare conversation, you know, we started this with. Mm. Um I know, you know, one and two star generals that were captains and majors uh, early on in this war who had multiple blasts, you know, during their first couple deployments, sometimes many blasts. I wonder at times if our inability to win these wars, and this goes back to Vietnam, by the way, because that was the first war of this type. Um, maybe we didn't win Vietnam. Maybe we're not winning now because of massive head injuries. Mm. And poor decision making. Mm. Yeah, right. Massive. It's huge. I Massive. Mean, yeah, and and so Sanopic, Sanopic is a is a business that that you and, and some others have put together where you are going to look for funds or lobby lobby government, I assume, for funds where you're going to bring so, te- technology, science, and current medical practices, and I assume leadership. Uh, some sort of leadership working groups, those sort of things with drop-in centres. I'm just visualising all this as I go in order to have an intervention primarily to start with with military and first responders and slowly to move out through, I would assume, through to sporting teams and local you know, local communities and everything because you're talking tens of billions of dollars, aren't you, worth of care that's currently being pushed towards those sort of injuries. It's uh, $1.1 trillion per year in the United States alone. Wow. 
1.1 trillion dollars. Right, and then and, um, and then to explain a trillion dollars, if you if you use it as time, I think this is the right equation. Someone can pull me up if it's not. A um, million dollars compared to a billion dollars is like 15 minutes of difference, and a billion a trillion dollars compared to a billion dollars is 33 years or something like that. To give an example of a difference, yes. <laughs> it's massive. So if I if I was to spend if I was a millionaire and I was to spend a dollar per day, it would take me uh, or a dollar per hour. It would take me uh, I can't remember how many days, but it would only take me a number of days. Yeah. You know, less than fifty days to spend all of that money. Right. If I had a billion dollars, it would take me eleven point one years. Right. Yeah. If I had a trillion dollars, it would take me over fifty thousand years. <laughs> Uh, wow. Well, I mean, so I shouldn't be laughing no, I, actually because we're talking about the amount of money, a trillion dollars that's spent on, uh, and that's mental health, um, traumatic that's brain right. injury. Uh, law enforcement, um, uh, well, law enforcement related to penal system, mm. the corrections department. So we know this is documented here in the United States. 60% of all prisoners and uh, individuals with criminal records, which is over 87 million here in the United States now, uh, which is really rather sad. Uh, 60% of them have documented head injuries. We know it's much higher than that because that 85% that never, you know, never reports and over 50% of homeless people, it's roughly 50% of homeless people have documented head injuries. Again, uh, most of the people that are, um, uh, prolonged homeless, uh, they don't have the mental acuity to actually go to doctors for that as you know, at all. So that's probably 100% of homeless people and, and of course, then they add the toxic on top of that. And for criminal populations, given the uh, demographic backgrounds of most of them, it's probably almost 100% as well. Um, the penal system in the United States alone is $246 billion a year. Wow. Right. So it's a quarter of a trillion dollars a year just for the penal system. Um, brain, mental health disorders, about $96 billion. Homeless is uh, in the 20 billions, you know, so all these things start adding up rather quickly. Mm. And then there's the actual formal medical system and mood disorders and all this other kind of, you know, uh, it adds up to about $1.1 trillion in the U.S. alone. It's about equal in the EU. They have a slightly less um, prevalence for head injuries, but it's not too far off. And, and while Synopic is looking at, you know, assisting people to to deal with those those um, illnesses or, or and damage it's also about um, optimization and performance too isn't it in, in the future it would be looking at how to how to how to go a long way to increasing people's cognitive ability yeah so um, the long-term cognitive capacities is everything right it's not enough to get somebody through um, uh, you know, a tough go, uh, you've got to look long-term at, you know, what's their optimization and performance. And think about it this way, even without widespread uh, head injuries, just given the complexity of how our world's changed in the last 20 years alone and the rate of excel- uh, change is accelerating, it takes a lot more, compu- you know, neural computational capacity uh, as applied to cognitive tasks and emotive tasks to just survive in today's world. So optimization is, even if there was not this widespread head injury issue, cognitive uh, and uh, neuropsych optimization is critically important just to 
you know, function in today's highly uh, connected, competitive, fast-paced world. Mm. So, yes, there's a long term. So, if I might, I, I kind of like to tell you a little bit of a story how I got the Synopic, right, it. and, and kind of what drove me that way. Um, and I haven't told any, only a couple inside people, by the way, but um, we were only eight telling weeks ago. Now, so. Well, yeah, all right. So about eight weeks ago, I'd finally come to my last. I'd, I'd lost everything. Uh, over an eight-year period of time, despite doing a whole bunch of things like PhD in a very difficult field and standing up special mission capability and all these other things, I steadily lost ground and lost everything. About eight weeks ago, a gentleman called me, Andrew Marr, called me from Warrior Angel Foundation to see if, you know, maybe something they, maybe there was a business around this head injury stuff they've been looking at and working on for five years. And it just so happened that was the right probably two hours for me to say, hey, I think I might need some help myself. Mm. Uh, about eight weeks ago, I got tested. Sure enough, came back. I've got, you know, all the signs of repetitive traumatic brain injury myself. Um, within about three days of just the hormone replacement therapy alone, but also the I went to a medical conference and, you know, did my kind of academic nerdy stuff too. Um, but within three days of treatments and then understanding what was going on, I had a fundamental change, mm. right? Fundamental improvement. Uh, you know, I won't say that I didn't have suicidal ideation in there as well over the years. Right. Mm. Although of course I'm not the guy to perhaps execute that, but it was in there. Um, I started realizing once I started looking at the data, I started looking at the medicine. I started looking at the research. I started looking at all the, types of things to try and understand all the different uh, fields that impact brain health and then neuropsych health. Uh, so I can try and help understand my own, what was going on in my own brain and my own self, my own life and what had happened and how I could put it back together. I started to really realize how big a problem this is. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, um, as embarrassing as it is to say, I realized that if somebody with all of my resources and opportunities and access and intelligence could be ruined by something as small as a blow to the head, mm. or in my case, repetitive blows to the head, mm. uh, what chance? What chance do most people have? Mm. Yeah, right. right. What? What? And particularly those that are still involved in their careers, whether it's special operations or contracting or even their, you know, somebody working in an office that can't ask for help because the, the, to ask for help, they have to admit to a specific kind of problem and then they get labeled and then that's used to, you know, diminish them, etc. Mm. Maybe not maliciously, but, you know, if, if you've got a, a no-fail mission, such as a corporation or a military operation, and somebody says, hey, I might have a cognitive problem, you, you got to kind of sideline them. It's, you know, it's just the truth of it. Yeah. Um, so, so that got me looking at all of this. And I realized, you know, and then I started looking at all the treatment options, uh, the diagnostic options, the uh, payor side of things, you know, the insurance options. And I realized that there was no head injury industry. Mm. It was a whole bunch of disparate pieces, uh, many of which were all competing for one another for dominance to claim that they were the end all solution. And the truth is, like most things, like you know, our special operations time, it's 
no single thing. It's an integration of a bunch of different things. Um, I took a step back and realized, hey, there's an opportunity for a real business here. And that's what Andrew had asked me, right, to, to take a look at. And, and Andrew's the one that had pointed me to the right doctors and the right treatments and and uh, and his foundation helped offset the costs. And so, you know, they quite literally, they saved my life, right? And 300 other people over the last five years. Yeah. Um, at the same time, five weeks ago, I was away at a treat for a special treatment and I lost three friends that week alone. Mm. You know, two of them took their own lives. Uh, and the other one had what's called secondary concussion syndrome. He'd had so many blast injuries that he took a slight blow to the head, sat down and died. Right. So I real I started to look at, well, how do we address this? If we go through governments and we go through grants and we go through the medical industry, well, they're doing everything they can. And the truth is they're doing a lot. Um, there are tens of billions of dollars a year that are pouring into this problem. There's a lot of the brightest and best people in the world trying to solve it. The problem is that the brain is the most complex system that we know of in the universe. And we cannot address brain injuries and the resultant mood disorders and all the other psychometric things that come out of it and psychological things come out of it with isolated solutions that this isn't a medical problem. It's a data problem and it's a data integration problem. So in, in this case, it's think about the way that we do medicine today. You go, you go talk about some things you're feeling or experiencing. Mm. The doctor makes some assessments about that. That's if you go talk to the doctor, of course. Yeah. And if you're honest, because if you're truly honest when it comes to the brain, you might lose your career. So you're probably bouncing around it if you're you know, talking to it at all. Mm. And the doctor sends you to go get certain tests that they know about or know of. Mm. And that's a snap snapshot of certain things they look at and they interpret in a certain way at that period of time. And then they prescribe you some, you know, treatment from that. Mm. Well, the way the brain works is vastly more complicated than that. Let's talk to take the body, just the body itself. You go through roughly five major metabolic um, uh, shifts in a day. Right, And that's millions of years of evolution have driven those processes in the body. Well, how is some test at 2.30 on a Thursday, three months from now, uh, supposed to determine what's really going on with me as, a, as an aggregate whole? The main problem that we have is that we are not collecting enough data, uh, live data. And you can't, you know, there are tests that you can go get on, you know, like QEEG, where you go live under some electrodes for 48 hours, you go do a sleep test, you do these other things. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who has the time for that? Right. And it's such an artificial environment that, you know, it's the observer effect that we talk about in quantum physics, uh -huh. just yeah. getting hooked up to all the machines changes, you know, the way you all approach everything. Yeah. So I realized that, Hey, the problem is, is that we've got to have persistent data collection, right? We've got to be collecting data on the individual's current state, both physiologically and psychologically, uh, pretty much perpetually. And we've got to then augment that with certain external tests, such as spec scans, 
uh, volumetric scans, uh, QEEG, you know, some of these other ty- uh, uh, functional MRIs and some of these other tests, which individually can't demonstrate the actual damage, but they can show different aspects of it. Yeah. So we integrate this. We've, we've got to have a perpetual data stream. We've got to match that up with some of these more extensive specialized tests and but we've got to do all of that while applying different treatments in a more strategic way that is tailored to that individual because that's the other thing about brains uh unlike most of the rest of our bodies our brains really are wired very very differently and how we respond to things uh both on the damage side and then on the uh, treatment side is very individualized. Mm. So we've got to have steady data collection. Mm. We've got to analyze that data in the context of that individual, not just its snapshots, but over time. And we've got to set treatment, you know, we've got to better predict which treatments they need to, t- to do and take and- from that data. And then we need to take the combination of all of that and predict what is their response to and what else do we need to send them to go do? Mm. And, you know, what we're finding is if we do that correctly, and right now there's a couple doctors that do some of that, right. But it's ridiculously expensive. It takes years to go through it. And that precludes all, but a very, very, very small number of people from being able to do it. Yeah. So how do we take, you know, my background here in Silicon Valley is, is network systems and mobile telecommunications and um, uh, electrical engineering and computational engineering, like you said. So it was like, okay, well, there's a collection device in somebody's pocket pretty much all day long, and that's their mobile device. Mm. There's these incredible wearables that are out there right now that are providing live telemetry data mm. for heart rate variability resting heart rate, sleep patterns, you know, all these kind of more and more sophisticated I've seen, things. I've seen now they've and there's, got... They've got uh... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Something now, a patch that has a small um, needle in it that you can put on your arm and it will give you blood glucose and ketones as well. Exactly, exactly. And ketones are very important when you're get, looking at heavy metals. And a lot of guys from our world got heavy metal problems, right? Mm-hmm. Um, throwing all that lead down range uh, on, the, on the range itself, not even in combat, mm-hmm. but, you know, throwing all that mm-hmm. range, lead down range. And then um, the materials and chemicals that we work with when we're, you know, creating door breaches and everything else, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it micronizes all that stuff and it gets in our blood. So, um, yeah, so microfluidics, right, which you're talking about, that's another mm. key piece. It's a little bit farther behind, except in some very specific areas. Mm. But wearables, psychometric assessment and analysis through just simple interactions and some very robust, in terms of intelligent robust, but simple to use testing through your mobile application, integrated with your medical records, integrated with uh, doctor's notes, integrated with other labs that we do. 
provides an incredible, can provide an incredible picture of that individual at that point. And so that's, you know, that's what we're going after. Um, we've stayed away from governments, um, just not because they're bad or et cetera, but they're bureaucracies and, and, you know, they've been trying to solve this problem for about 17 years, 15 years, I guess, 14, 15 years directly, yeah. uh, doing everything they can. The medical industry is doing everything it can. But the problem is, is that uh, we're done killing ourselves for them because yeah. they can't figure it out. Yeah. So we got to take this into our own hands and we got to figure that out. Well, that's a tech problem. Well, we know how to do that in Silicon Valley, right? Data is something we know. That's, that's what created Microsoft. Well, that was actually kind of peripheral integration but there's a piece of that here in Sinopic, right with these like you were talking about the patch and wearables and these other things so it's kind of a microsoft play um we did it with google which was a broad uh information source organizational play well that's the same here if you're looking across different medical records different labs different telemetry feeds different right so that's kind of that play and then we did the same with social and social engagement and interaction and, and, and social information with Facebook. And, and there's a bunch of that here because most of how, um, and I, this is my own case, the, uh, most of the way that these problems demonstrate themselves are socially. They're, they're social interaction problems, right? And I know you've seen this, you know, with, with your mates that you've worked with, right? Yep. In in my case, I'm Zen Buddhist. I grew up Zen Buddhist. If I got into some kind of stress or tense or emotional place, I meditated, made it go away. So that kind of masked the you know underlying problem. It doesn't fix where it. I couldn't. I'm sorry. It doesn't fix it. It doesn't help. It's not part of the solution. It is part of the solution. The problem is, is that it took me eight years to realize that I had physical damage that I couldn't meditate or nutrition or strong guy away. Right. right. Physical damage is physical damage. It's like, you know, if I tear, you know, my pec, uh, you know, if I separate my pec from my sternum, I, I have to go get surgery. I, I literally, you know, I can't just put my arm in a sling and hope it reattaches itself. I've got to go get some surgery and have it reattach itself, depending on the severity, of course, of the, mm -hmm. you know, the tear. Uh, it's the same with the brain. So it is very much a part and it did keep me from spinning completely out of control, yeah. right? It did keep me from violence and, and addictions and all those other kinds of things. But the price for it was that I had to isolate more and more and more and more. And I paid for things more and more and more myself. And I was still, even while I was doing my doctoral studies, I was still with special forces, uh, national guard. So, um, you know, the last thing I, one, I didn't have PTSD, but the last thing I wanted to do was given my security clearances, I didn't want to go do anything that might be implied in any form or fashion that I had, you know, post-traumatic stress or something else that would, you know, negatively impact my ability to contribute, right? Isn't that, um, isn't that just a damning comment in itself, you know, the fact that people can can do this life of service and, and have post-traumatic stress from it and then they need to not show that so that they can maintain a future and a career, you know. And and I would see that Sanopic would be a bit of the solution to to post-traumatic stress, although because the brain injuries in that regard are, are, are a toxic brain injury, whether you've been exposed to something that's, um, you know, a catastrophic moment where you felt that your life was in danger 
and and now you're able to monitor you know everything through these wearables as well as gain counseling have personalized care everything is in a, a, a single integrated platform so you can see your recovery in some sort of a data graph i would assume um yeah yeah and and then at some yeah and at some point it should become less of an issue for us to say well this this person's got post-traumatic stress because they were standing in the middle of a village when uh, a remote controlled ied went off not once but three or four times which was the, which was the case with my platoon you know and i know there were guys there that were affected mm. by, by that yeah. um yeah. and then you know if you talk about if you think about lieutenant Colonel Dave Grosman's book on killing and on combat and the way that socialization of possibilities of warfare, the possibilities of death, the possibilities of killing, the possibilities of having a brain injury, that should form part of Synopic, I think, is those if, if you want to go and actually immunize people from post-traumatic stress as well. you know. So if you're immunizing those people from post-traumatic stress, that could be another branch of Synopic prior to, you know, because emergency services, police and the like, if they've got that pre-training and then they're able to monitor themselves, you know, and then be able to see where they're, where they're at. But anyway, I just think it's a, a damning thing, you know, for you, for you to say, well, you know, I, I didn't have PDS, but if I did have it, um, I'd need to hide that. You know, in Australia, we're, we're having this conversation now. It's like if you've got post-traumatic stress from your service, well, we want to you know, and I mean true post-traumatic stress, not just being a fucking victim for the sake of being a victim because you put your hand out. I mean, really, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, which is yeah. which is a problem as well. Which is a whole other range of issues, which absolutely yeah. pisses me off. But you know, if you actually do have post-traumatic stress, then Jesus, we want to try and fix that, you know, and that can be fixed. As hard as that is, so I think, yeah. So one of the things that so I'm I'm completely with you. I want to get back at a moment to what we call our resiliency line, um, okay. kind of the inoculation, but you can't prevent, right? But no. Um, um, no, you can soften though. You can, you can lessen the likelihood of severity, right? Right. Severity. 100% agree. So absolutely. Right. I, I don't know personally, but I've, you know, I've studied warfare. I've studied, stress and uh, poverty and all these things my whole life since I was a young child. Um, uh, I come from a fairly old family, not fairly, but very old family. And there's a bit of that historical knowledge that's carried on in those kinds of families. Uh, but I also had a mother that lost her mind, became very violent. And, and I lived part of my childhood going from luxury uh, to living in abject poverty and violence and fear every day. I watched the way my brother responded to that. This is long before I, you know, when the special forces went away to war, et cetera, uh, and how I responded to it. A lot of our guys at the higher level, guys and girls, right? I don't mean that's not a gender thing, but, you know, a lot of our uh, operators, and, and I don't think most of the world realizes, but we've got some damn good women operators as well, and we couldn't do the work that we do around the world without them. Some are because of the length of the severity of the events that they've witnessed and been a part of, but more because of the lack of care, right? Proper care, uh, do have PTSD, but most don't. What they have is normal combat wear and tear that's been with us from the beginning of time. But what we don't have in our modern society anymore is the outlets for the warriors, men and women, to 
express that. I love where this conversation is going. Yeah, I agree. I love where it's going. We just simply don't have the outlets that we've had for all of our history to express that, to let it go. Agreed. To let it be. And more importantly, it never, that's the, the, the more fundamental thing in our modern, you know, uh, postmodernist world, that pain never leaves. Yeah. And this whole pursuit of, you know, you know, you should love yourself and, and pursue a life of happiness is antithetical to somebody who's real, lived a very real life doing real work in the real world and is paying the consequences oh, of that yeah. personally. I mean, I, I think about, you know, I'm down there in the gym at five o'clock in the morning with a roller door up and, and I'm playing disturbed and thinking about doing gun runs through the kill house, shooting terrorists in the face. But the, 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 yeah. issue, the, issue is, the issue with that is I never actually did that for real with disturbed playing in the background and all of this stuff. Everything I did that was in combat was stimulus response, stimulus response. I was trained for it with stimulus response, but it wasn't this heightened, elevated, you know, thing that, that happened that you see in the movies. It's not, no. like, it's not like that no. at all. But the, we get stress inoculated, yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. so it's a, it's a, it's fanciful in some ways, but I mean, and yet we yeah. would train, you know, we we would quite often train. You'd you'd be up there with the with the lads, you know, you'd be you you go to the action wall, you action up, and then you go going through room floor combat, and that is you know, and you are in a different world because you might have NVGs on or you may have just a Scott goggle on or something like that. And yeah. your, your world becomes... Or yeah. Right, and, yeah. Your, and your yeah. world becomes one of violence in about a 90-degree arc of wherever you're looking. Yeah. And, 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 you, yeah. And, and it's amazing and it's awesome and it's brilliant. And, and, you, and when you're blowing doors up at night and going, going into the rooms and stuff, it's an adrenaline rush. You can't, or even when, as you know, when when women and children start flooding out of a village and you realise it's about to be on and then that first round goes off and then there's this huge anti-climax, you don't get that yes. walking down, you know, Burke Street in, in Melbourne. You don't you get You don't. That. No, but you know what? I, I look, I want to go back to Chicago, right? Um, well, maybe you get it in America. <laughs> I, well, I've known, well, and, and in some of the more violent ghettos in, the, in Europe, right? The kind of stylized, you know, like you were saying, disturbed, playing in the background, the, uh, what is it, training day kind of, you yeah. know, experience. Yeah. Um, the, uh, what was his name, Denzel Washington movie, right? But um, that does happen. Yeah. yeah, of course. But it doesn't happen to us very much. No. It happens to folks living in violent inner cities, yeah. uh, even civilians that are trapped in violent relationships. Yeah. And uh, myself for seven years with my mother tried to kill me numerous times mm. and I had no way to get out of that, no way to escape that. Uh, and it ended up, my brother wound up going to prison and he had several head injuries, actually documented head injuries and mm. wound up drugs prison and shot in the head by the time he was 21. Yeah. Um, you know, for us, for those that, you know, like yourself and myself and many others. People are going to want to know. Sorry, man. People are going to want to know. What, what's your brother doing now? Where is he? What's he? He's dead. He, is, he was he. shot in the head in 91. So he was killed. Yeah. Yeah, he was killed. Fuck. Right. He, he couldn't find his way out of that perpetual, nonstop, utter stress and violence world. Sorry. To hear it that, became man. the norm for him. Mm. Well, he was doing bad things to good people and maybe that was the best end for him. Right. But, mm. um, you know, for us, people, 
look at us as the warriors and that's not just you know special operations but it is some of the mm. first responders and the people that are out there every day mm. because the vast majority of society doesn't pay that kind of price daily they have no way to value the individuals that do right and because of that, because of the no ability to truly value those individuals for the work that the, the, you know, extraordinary work that they do, there's also no way then to understand or at least live with the price for those individuals that comes with doing that work. Right. So what is the modern, you know, what does the modern average civil citizen do? Thank you for your service. Shape. Well, right. What does it tell me? It tells me you haven't, first off, you haven't done a damn thing in your life. That's real. Right. I don't mean that as, you know, I don't try to be judgmental about that, et cetera, but it's the truth. Right. And the second thing is I sure as fuck didn't do it for your gratitude. Right. Yeah. I did it because it was the right thing to do because I have a, you know, now about to be 11 year old, beautiful little girl. Yeah, cool. And I didn't want her to live with non-stop threat. I, I think and every time someone says to me, and because we don't get it very much in Australia, thankfully, yeah. when I hear, hey, thanks for your service, it makes me cringe because I'm like, dude, I had the best job in the world. Thanks for letting me do that. Like, you got Yes, no, thank yeah. you for paying for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and I, I think it's a, it's a, I don't like it myself and i've said this before and i hope it doesn't creep in uh, in australia you know i don't blame them for it by the way i really no, don't um i think personally the warrior class has forgotten their place yeah being warriors. we've become we've become addicted to the gun work and we have forgotten that the warrior class were the leading class we were the aristocracy the nobility and we had responsibilities for our people Right. Not just for old cool factor and our Oakley sunglasses and, you know, uh, cry, you know, uniforms and all that. And our, our little uh, GoPro uh, videos, you know, taking down a bill, a complex or something through most of all of human history and primate history. The warriors were the alphas and they led through influence and they they did the hard things that were necessary in defense of their people, not for their own attitude, their own ego, their own careers, etc. And because of that, there was an understanding between the warrior class and the people about the value of these things, right? The warrior also couldn't be a warrior out there in the world without the people, you know, supporting them. I think this is the thing that's missing from our modern warrior class. I, I, uh, I hate to say it, but more and more, we are devolving into very highly skilled and capable killers and not much more. Yeah, right. As opposed to being that influential leadership class that has a, the, yeah. Right. That's exactly it. You know, that broad, you know, what is the, we call it the seven elements of national power, uh, diplomatic information, military, economic, finance, intelligence, and law enforcement. We used to be the masters of all seven elements, right? And that meant we went into government and we went into finance and we went into academia and we went into all these other fields. But now because whatever, you know, bigger movements than I think I can understand, we're a small subcast 
that has forgotten its real place in the world. So political extension, become, political extension without, yes. without the, the political influence, without the societal. That's right, without the understanding. Without the yeah. societal influence. Yeah. What, what is a, We've, M, what is a modern-day warrior to you, or what should it be? I think, well, that's a wonderful question. While not an exact uh, example because they had their own cultural norms, but I think more like the samurai of the Tokugawa era or, or just prior to, right? And, I, and forgive me, there's a couple other, you know, actually, I think more importantly, it would be more like the original Roman legions, right? They were all Romans and they served not the Roman state, but the ideals that were Rome. They were the landowners. They were the ones that had influence over many, many, many more things than just warfare. I think this is another major problem that we have today is it is no longer our warriors that are in positions that send warriors to, or soldiers to go fight. Yeah. And with that, without that, unless you have a at least majority of individuals who are sending people away to fight around the world or even in inner cities, et cetera, who themselves have served in some capacity of doing that, they literally have absolutely no idea what they're doing. Right. No idea what the costs are. No idea. And I don't mean just to the soldiers themselves, but the civilization and their own economies and communities etc yeah which what makes me worry makes me worry about what's happening at the moment in in the middle east uh in in iran you know because well i don't know how influential or how much of a decision your current president can whether or not he can just make the call himself or not i'm I'm assuming not yeah but it's it's like we're not talking about you know you go to war with iran you're not talking about three or four people being killed. <laughs> you know, the, the, the economic driver, the economics around that war would be devastating to the region. I mean, yeah. Well, I have a question for you. Mm. Um, are we actually not already at war with Iran? And have we not already been at war with Iran since 1978? I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't, I mean, I mean, of course, anyone, you could argue, of course, yes. But I know Iranian people. Uh, you know, I know a lot of Iranian people. There's a lot of Iranian people here in Australia, and they don't necessarily like their leadership, <laughs> but they won't say that. And I would be careful what I say as well, to be fair, because I travel a lot. Yeah, I do think that there's an there's an issue there that's bigger than Iran, and there's an issue there that's in the Middle East and leading into Israel. And there's there's issues at play well above the president of the United States pay grade. There's things there. There's things there that are, that are happening. Um, I mean, we're, they're, they're already fighting a, a war in Yemen that is USSF, US special, you, you know, uh, Soviet special forces. Yeah. Um, ex- yeah. yeah there, there's there's Iranian. There's Saudi, UAE. They're, they're on the streets there. You know, anyone who says anything different. Same with know. Syria. Same with Syria, <laughs> and we're doing it all over. I I, I would say that. We are not, I have a lot of Persian friends growing up, by the way, here in the Bay Area, mm. uh, and, and a couple of Persian girlfriends, by the way. Um, beautiful, beautiful people, incredible people with an ancient history, 
they have a distinction themselves, right? They call it the Arabization of Iran. And I don't know about that, right? That's not, you know, something I know a lot about. I've done a bit of study on that. But, yeah. Right. But what we are fighting right now, and it seems to be that Iran is this, the locus of this, although it used to be out of Egypt, is political Islam, not Islam itself, right? But this political Islam that has as a stated aim the destruction of Western civilization. Mm. Um, and for whatever reason, and maybe getting back to uh, the impact of widespread poor decision-making capacities because of head injuries and the result of mood disorders, etc., and, and uh, uh, psychological dysregulation that comes with head injuries in the West, mm. we seem patently incapable of admitting the real enemy. Mate, I love it because you're, you're 100% right. And, and this, to take it back to Sinopic but then move forward again, yeah. there's, there's – in in the area of study that that, that I'm interested in, which is in linguistics, um, societies, peace studies, that sort of thing, there is a growing movement for removing male male thought from politics because of the influence of testosterone, and to implement more women, which is bloody I can't even believe that we're not, but to in, to have more women in positions of power because of the the um, opposite effect of estrogen, the opposite effect of not having testosterone as a thought process, you mix that with damaged brains, you mix, you mix that testosterone, you know, and, and like you said, there's no outlet now for a modern warrior to, to continue some sort of a warrior lifestyle. And so that is manifesting in decision-making, bad, bad cognitive decision-making that is then fueled by testosterone and the next thing you know, you're in a war. Well, I, I had a very violent, abusive mother, uh, not a father. And sadly, I went and married the same person, just a small scale down version of that same person. Right. And spent another 14 years in a very abusive relationship, uh, which is embarrassing for a 200 plus pound, six foot two guy, uh, certain special forces to say. But Embarrassing, but not unusual uh, to hear, to be fair. And it's not uncommon, yeah. right? Yep. It's not uncommon. Yep. Uh, I think we need to be very, very careful and not fall into the pit of thinking that's estrogen versus testosterone because really? it's not. Okay. Mm. It's alpha versus beta. Mm. Mm. It's the alpha leadership versus beta aggression. Mm. If we look throughout human history at all primate species, in fact, all mammalian species, every species is driven by a limbic system. Mm. There is a perpetual war between the, the very few number of alphas who tend to be the warriors and the far superior number of betas, a good portion of which are aggressive because they believe that if they just pushed hard enough, they could upset the alpha. Although in most of these cases, they don't believe they can upset the alpha, but it's a means by which they can exert influence over their little subgroup, you know, their little subtribe within, you know, the, the greater tribe. And we see this play out in numerous studies that go back long, long ago. We could literally just watch, you know, the animal kingdom as a kid. I'd watch the animal kingdom and see these things playing out. Um, we need to not 
fall into the trap that has been intentionally, you know, promoted over the last 40 years to think that this is an estrogen testosterone thing. It is right. not. Okay. And so that would say, is, so, so the, so, so the, some of the support for that argument might be that on the left of politics, you're seeing more of those beta type personalities who are aggressive, passive aggressive. Yes. And so they're not, okay, yes. that is interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it like that. Yes. Yeah. So think of it this way, right? So since World War II, when the true alphas had fought a massive war, 20 some odd years after roughly 30 years, 25 years, I can't even do simple math right now. I can do calculus, but I can't do simple math. But you know, after having, you know, their their parents' generation having fought the first world war. And then going through the depression. Alphas kind yeah. of, and then the depression, yeah. alphas kind of were tired. Yeah. They were burned out. They took a break. And there's some good literature out there that shows that the first world war was actually fostered by betas, you know, management, uh, right, um, to bring down monarchy. Jesus. Right. And monarchy had weakened itself to such a degree that, you know, maybe that was necessary. But we're kind of, you know, two and a half generations on dealing with them. But uh, getting back to the point, uh, the problem that we're dealing with in modern society is that we are conflating alpha based leadership with A types. Right. And that's, you know, all this stuff. And that's why we get up with this, you know, well, we need more estrogen based, you know, power, et cetera. No, it's it's not that at all. It's that A types are not alphas. Anybody who's aggro, anybody who leads through bluster or force or any of that is not an alpha. And no, no study that has ever been done on any primate species or even mammalian, any other mammalian species demonstrates that wolves is a particular example demonstrates the alpha as an aggressive blowhard. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The alpha is the most calm, mellow, centered being there who is leading through influence. And this is actually in my book, uh, Starving for Leadership, right? Mm. Alpha-based leadership. Well, we've lost that. And we've lost that alpha-based leadership because to be a true alpha, particularly in today's world, means you need to be, back to the warrior question you asked, right? To be a true alpha, true warrior, means you must spend, in today's world, at least 20 years in study of a vast number of domains and subjects, not just warfare, not just conflict, because... I'm sorry? Well, I love where this is going, because my next book, which is a leadership book, is that the the working title is Rise of the Alpha, um, but it's not, but as you know, a, an officer in the military, uh, so, so for me, Yankee platoon, so I was Yankee alpha. So, oh, gotcha. so the, the, the term is around rise of the alpha as in rise of that platoon commander, but, but everything you are saying describes how I would look at my particular leadership style anyway, because I wasn't the biggest, strongest, fastest guy in that special forces unit, but I had to be the one that was, you know, cognitively alert, influenced yes. through purpose, motivation, direction, and and also be able to. Now, there's a word I use that people don't like, uh, a leadership word that people people don't like, and the the leadership word is manipulation. And I firmly believe that if you want to be able to, if you if you can't manipulate yourself. Um, then you're not going to be effective, but you also need to be able to manipulate other people 
by being able to pander to their particular um, personalities and character traits, and it's not manipulate in a bad way. We manipulate a, a nut onto a bolt, for instance. It's, it's changing who you are to suit the circumstances and the people that you are trying to influence. Um, and that, I think, is one of the ways that alphas uh, are able to be effective in modern society. So I don't disagree with you at all. I think you use the, the proper word in, in what you just said. So while we have conflated uh, A-types with alphas, we have also conflated influence with manipulation. Right. Right. I have you know, a young daughter, uh, beautiful and brilliant. Um, I have at different times in her life, I, I want her to pick her own path in her own way. I want her to be powerful all in her own right, whatever that might be. And I have never tried to tell her what to do or how to do it or who to be at all. That, that last part I've never done. Mm. Um, but there have been times where I've seen her going down pathways that I knew were going to cost her too much. And I've so as to not create an adversarial relationship between us, I have influenced things around her and the conversation to drive her down a pathway from those who are weak in particular betas and, and thetas as well, right? There's, there's not, it's not just alphas and betas. There's, there's thetas as well. Or what do they call zetas? Maybe I don't remember what it is, but whatever the third category is, right? Um, the betas who are looking because they misunderstand what influence is because they don't have the capacity for it other than through bluster force, um, superior titles and position and rank and, you know, all those other things. The moment an alpha uses influence to guide things in the proper direction, it's immediately labeled manipulation because that is a negative connotation. Mm. So I think in our modern world, we've, we've got three great, you know, Steven Pinker said that there's three great lies modern societies laid upon blank slate, you know, that we're born neutral and, and everything's trained upon us in our environment. We know that's not true at all in genetics and behavioral studies, et cetera, going back 30 some odd years. The next one is the noble savage, you know, that if we devolve technologically and um, societally to a certain degree that is, you know, some earlier grade, uh, degree of stable tribalism that, you know, rape and murder and all this aggression and stuff didn't exist. Well, we know that's all bunk as well. That was falsities that were created in the 1910s and 20s by uh, anthropologists who have all been dramatically dis- you know, discredited. In fact, rape was seven t- is now in these remote tribes seven times more than in our even our inner cities. Murder is like 20, 30 times higher, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, and then the third one was the uh, ghost in the machine, right? The Pinker says that uh, there is this soul, the soul is separate from the body, it's separate from this being here, it's eternal, it's caught up in this fight between good and evil that's an eternal fight, and really you're not really responsible for anything that, you know, really happens ultimately because, you know, that's between God and the devil. And all three of those lies um, really permeate everything. Well, how does that play itself out? Primarily, it plays itself out that, one, there's this war between the estrogen and testosterone-based brains. That's not true throughout history. Mm. We have only gotten to where we are because of a balance between estrogen and testosterone minds. Um, 
we would not have the society we have today to where folks can make the claims and assertions they do without getting shot in the street or, you know, getting their throat slit. If it wasn't for the fact that we do have a pretty good balance between the two strengths. And more importantly, the second great lie is that estrogen or testosterone is inherently violent. Well, actually that's not true at all. Getting back to the alpha you know, based leadership, testosterone tends to be more calm centered and stable when it's not destabilized by other things, when it has, you know, counterbalance of proper estrogen mm. and not in the same body, of course. Right. But in, you know, in the, in the counterpart, um, well, it, it's that, um, uh, a types and, and alphas have been conflated with one another, right. Mm. That, mm. that we have reached such a s- sustainable, excuse me, we have reached such an advanced state of civilization to where now the balance between estrogen and, and testosterone is no longer necessary and we mm. can overbalance with one, mm. that societies reach such a level of sophistication and stability that alphas are no longer necessary and now betas, you know, as aggressive management can handle it. Um, uh, give me a second. Right up, I think right up until, right up until you ones, need, right? right up until you need the What's alphas. That? Right up until you need the alphas again. Well, and that's the thing. Well, and oh, and that's the third one. And and the third piece is that alphas are only male, right? right? That is not true. Uh, it's not true at all. Uh, in fact, there is an equal number of alpha female. But the, I personally think that there has been a massive war on women since the beginning of the modern feminist movement. Mm. And I watched in my own life with my own mother, mm. right? And it destroyed her life and all of our relationships and everything around her. But, you know, we males still have warfare and we still have, you know, MMA and we still have, and then there's some women now in that too more, which is wonderful. Um, uh, not that I get turned on by seeing women beat each other up though. That's not, uh, <laughs> you know, not my thing. But, um, but I think it's wonderful that, you know, it, it demonstrates that there are physically aggressive and capable women as well, right, in the fight. But I think that this um, greatest, you know, aside from head injury problems, which again, this might get back to why we can't solve this, but I think the loss of the alpha female in our Western societies has been the has been and is the underlying root cause of the demise of Western civilization. Wow, what an amazing thought! Holy shit! <laughs> yeah, I like it. Right, we've we've wound up with a lot of beta females who are very vociferous, very loud, very angry, very abusive, very aggressive, and we're still conflating that with A types, right? And we have dramatically undervalued the value of a powerful, strong alpha female mm. Mm. that influence-based leadership amongst women. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's right because who ta- who even as sons who raises us the first three and a half years? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. This sounds like something Jordan Peterson would be dining out on. You know. I just stumbled upon him, by the way, here just recently, actually. So yeah, he's interesting, um, isn't he? I think, yeah, I, think, I think you and him would have some good conversations. <laughs> so, so what's, perhaps, perhaps. What, what's the future for Sanopic? Sanopic. 
Yeah, so uh, I've been architecting the um, the software platform, the mobile application software platform. I've been I put together, been able to put together um, uh, gratefully from my network, a, a world class team of, of leaders um, in different fields. It is the unique time that that even the staunch industry is, you know, almost up in arms and saying, "Hey, we we just we can't solve this problem." Mm. So it's provided a unique opportunity. One of the other interesting things that's happening right now is now that I'm out talking to investors over the last, I think we just started about three weeks ago. Um, there hasn't been a single high net worth individual that we've spoken to that doesn't have at least one family member and many times more than one immediately close to them that is living with head injuries and resulting mood disorders that they've tried everything with. Yeah. And some of them have put hundreds of thousands of dollars over years and periods of time and to try, you know, with the best treatments and the most advanced this or that, uh, and the, to no avail. Mm. Uh, and again, it's because the way we do medicine today, and by the way, this just isn't just head injuries. This is medicine across the board. Mm. One, we don't individualize it to that person's unique biophysiology and then, you know, neuropsychology that, that comes out of that or, or what is that, uh, biopsychology, mm, right? Mm. Um, and we do these snapshots, these little snapshot pictures in time that we analyze in very, you know, observer effect kind of ways. So we're really not looking at people as individuals in holistic manners and then applying all these incredible things we do have. Amazing. So right now where we are at Sinopic, we're finishing up the, the design of the software platform. We're bringing in signing and uh, agreements with the multitudinous partners uh, that are necessary to provide all these different treatment modalities and diagnostics, et cetera. Uh, and we're in fundraising right now. Awesome. So hopefully, and we're getting, we're, we've been doing a pilot warrior angel foundation did a five year just for hormone replacement therapy, but um, they've done some good studies there. Uh, we're getting ready to do a pilot with um, some special operations folks here in the U.S. Mm. and first responders, uh, right. police department, and fire departments in particular. And if there's, so that's where we are. If there's any uh, any uh, high net worth investors listening to this that might want to reach out to you or, or anyone who wants to hear more about um, Synopic, how can they get hold of you, M? Yeah, so email me at em at synopic.com. Uh, you can go to the website, synopic.com. It's, it's just a splash page right now. We'll get some more up here rather soon. But, mm. you know, the best thing is uh, is email me and reach out and let's have a conversation. Yeah. You know, we're, we're done killing ourselves because the system can't fix itself. So mm. in true alpha leadership style, that means, hey, let's not tear the system down. Let's step forward and see how we can influence all the wonderful things. And there really is incredible things out mm. there. Mm. Let's see if we can influence to all work together a little better so that we can actually address this problem, which goes way outside special operations, way outside first responders, way outside athletes. It's, it's a huge problem in, in Western society in particular because of the complexity of decisions we have to make every day just to survive. Yeah. But it's equally, you know, you know, places you and I have, you know, let's just say walked in the dirt with heavy equipment on, mm. um, it's far more prevalent there. The The reason it's not as demonstrable there is because the day-to-day decisions they have to make are not as, you know, extensive as ours or as complex as ours, mm. but it's a bigger problem even there. And that brings up some questions about, 
is this why certain parts of the world, despite $100 trillion in nonprofits and, and things that have been going on over the last 70 years, haven't had as much traction as they perhaps should? Yeah, got it. Uh, M, I want to thank you for being on the Warrior You podcast. I could talk to you about all these things for hours, and uh, I really want to thank you as well for for some of the education that you've given me. Um, a couple of my points might be a little bit off skew, so I'm going to go back and do some research, especially around the uh, the estrogen balance with testosterone. I think that's well worth exploring some more. So I want to thank you very much for that, mate. Well, I appreciate the time, Bram. Uh, it's also good to talk to brothers, stomp some of the same ground I've stomped. So. Thank you. Much respect. Thanks, mate. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.